Beautifully read, beautifully read. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. Father, we ask that you make it new to us again this evening. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, the church calendar is uh, built on the Gregorian calendar, which, of course, puts Christmas on December 25th, like we all know. Uh, but in my linear chronological mind, I've always wondered, why is it at the end of the year when Christmas ought to be maybe like in January, at the beginning of the year, and then Easter ought to be like in the fall instead of the spring, and then Pentecost maybe in December, something like that, just kind of follow the, follow the story like that. And uh, then it kind of dawned on me that when uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrote the, the, uh, the Christmas stories, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that it was after the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So in other words, they read this birth story in the light of a post-resurrection faith. And it, that starts to make sense to me, because if Jesus is not risen, then this birth story is just nostalgia, and it's just a quaint story, basically. Uh, if Jesus is, is, is not risen, then, then the teachings of Jesus are just kind of teachings on ethics, pretty much. But this is different. This is something else. Because Jesus is risen, this is the culmination of the hope, the longing, the dreams of Israel to bring about their rescue from exile and from their enemies. Because of the resurrection, this story is about the dreams of Israel bursting on the scene. The new creation is erupting into history at Christmas. This is totally, totally different. This is a breakthrough that is happening in Bethlehem. And so that's kind of what I thought I would title this, this message this, this evening is a breakthrough in Bethlehem. It was this breakthrough into history, this eruption into history of the new creation. A breakthrough of grace. That God acted on his own free will and because he did this on Christmas, that he acted on his own free will, that means that nothing separates us from the love of God. Amen. That life, love, and light, those, those things are on our side now because, because of Christmas. That's why this is so important. Now, if you know the, the backdrop of all this, when Luke starts to tell his story, if you were listening, you, you heard all this kind of stuff about, about Caesar and about the governor and about taxes and about a census and all these sorts of things. And the reason they, they did that, Luke did not include those things just because they were nice, trivial things to include. He included them for a purpose, for a reason. He wanted us to give us the Roman context of where all this thing took place. That this took place in a Roman context where Caesar, had uh, what he normally does is he goes into a territory and, and takes their census so that he can tax them. And if you know the background of, of Caesar, the mythology of Caesar, Caesar was this... Uh, offspring of a, of a mother who was human and whose father was a god. In fact, he was called the son of God. He was, uh, his, the son of God was imprinted on Roman coins. He called himself the Lord and Savior. And when he comes into a town, they sing about joy and peace because he was going to bring peace and prosperity to this, to this district, whatever he conquered. But of course, it was a peace that is brought by an up-to-down 
tyranny. And this is what he brought. So when the angels come and they start singing, they say, hey, I bring your good news. I'm bringing you good news, tidings of, of comfort and joy. I'm bringing you these things. And, uh, and there's peace to all men who God has found his favor. That's exactly what Caesar was saying when he would go to these towns. So is Luke plagiarizing Caesar? Is he borrowing some of Caesar's material here? No. He's trying to make a point. His point is this. Is that if you want to know where power is, you don't go to the throne room in Rome. You go to a stable in Bethlehem. That's where the power is. And this kind of broke all kinds of expectations and presuppositions that all the, that the Jews were hoping for. They were dreaming for centuries that this would happen. And now this has become a scandal that it happens in a stable with a baby. That's not how it was going to happen, but it doesn't matter to God. He doesn't care about breaking presuppositions and expectations. And so what he's saying to us is, that you want to find power, don't look to the White House. Don't look at Congress. Don't look at the Pentagon. You look at a stable with a teenage mother. One of the best sermons I ever heard was, uh, was by a guy named Otis Moss. He's an African-American pastor in Chicago. And, of course, he does it in, in a, a cadence that I cannot do because I don't have that kind of personality. And, but he says... We don't confuse position with power. He says that Pharaoh had position, but Moses had power. He said that Herod had a position, but John the Baptist had power. He said Caesar had a position, but the baby in the stable had the power. Pontius Pilate had a position, but the cross had the power. And he says, you want to find power, you got to go look at the, look at the stable. This is where the power is. And so when Jesus' disciples went around saying that Jesus is Lord, what they mean is Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It was more than just some doctrinal uh, proclamation that Jesus is Lord. This was, this was something personal. Something personal to them because they were staking their life on the fact that this Jesus is a revelation of God himself. Amen. This is where it's at. This is the power. And so when Luke writes his story, he wrote two books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And when he writes his story, he begins with this story of this baby being born in Bethlehem in a stable with a teenage mom and her fiancé. And it ends with the angels singing glory to the God in the highest. And it ends with Paul in Rome itself preaching the kingdom of God and saying Jesus is Lord right under the nose of Caesar himself. That's the story that Luke is telling, that he's trying to tell. And so this is this breakthrough of grace that's happening at Bethlehem. And so what I want to do this evening just really quickly is mention four things about this grace that caused it to be a breakthrough. That why is this breakthrough? First of all, grace... This grace that breaks through is a powerful love that strikes us. It is a powerful love that strikes us. And I use that word strike intentionally because that's what it feels like. 
It, it is where something that takes a hold of us and grabs us. It's not a doctrine that we, especially Protestants, we, we're big on you know, salvation by grace. It's more than that. It's something that grabs us and holds us. It's more than just a program that helps us get over our spiritual uh, faults and moral, moral shortcomings. It's more than just a program. It, it strikes us. It's purposeful. It's more than just a counseling way to maybe smooth over some relationships that we might have, but it touches us, and it touches us main, mainly where there's pain. It strikes us in the valley of death. It hits us in darkness. That's where it comes. It touches us in our weaknesses. It touches us when we feel indifferent or when we lack direction or we lack composure and we just don't know, we feel like we're at our, at our limit. And it's not something we perform to something, it's not something we perform for, it's something that grabs hold of us, it's something that strikes us, literally strikes us and makes a difference. We say this as a doctrinal standard here at Shepherd of the Valley about grace, but I believe it's got to be affecting us. It's got to hit us. And fortunately, I wish it was, in, I wish it was different, but it normally hits us in those dark days, in our weaknesses. And it's, just, it's not anything we perform for. It is something simply as accepting our acceptance. It's just something as simple that says, I accept my acceptance, that it strikes in me. And it's not to say that if you've ever experienced that, it's not to say that, that once you've experienced that, you suddenly become a better person or that you suddenly have more faith, but you know deep down that something has transformed, something has changed because of that. And you can't maybe put your finger on it, but you know something has happened to you. Something has changed. It's not something we come to because we by some, some form of reasoning. It's not something we come to because we strive for it necessarily. It's something that just, just we know Jesus' love, and that's it. We somehow know that. But knowing the doctrine, knowing the say that Jesus loves me, and I know that, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so, that's all good. But I really believe it needs to strike down at our core. There's a difference between knowing Jesus loves you and realizing Jesus loves you. And there's a big difference there, and it changes everything. It's, the, it's this powerful love that actually strikes us, grabs us, and holds us. But grace is also a tremendous love that takes to the chase. It goes after us. It seeks us. It takes the initiative. It goes after us. I think this whole idea of grace is actually, when we get down to it, is very alien in American culture. Uh, we like to have the idea that, you know, we have this machismo bit of, of kind of, of Christianity or something or spirituality, and it kind of goes against really this idea of grace really kind of hits a little bit different than what we were thinking. We like to, do, we like to think that we are a do-it-yourself culture. Well, there is no... DIY Christianity because that just puts God's on the sideline and we start to take center stage and we do that because we have this need for significance we have this need to be worthy and let me tell you something you're already worthy you're already worthy you don't have to prove it I have a daughter that I deeply love and she lives in the UK, and we miss her incredibly at Christmas time. 
I will always love her. She is always worthy of my love, just the fact that she was born. Amen. She's never done a thing to deserve it or, or to earn it, but just the fact that she breathes air makes her worthy of my love. And that's what God is telling us. It's, it's, we, we seem like we cannot allow God to come to us that with something that we've got to do ourselves, that we've got to climb to God instead. But Christmas tells us he came to us. This is the breakthrough at Bethlehem, and it's a scandal for a lot of people when they think about it. It's a scandal for those who are wanting this domineering conqueror. It's a scandal for those who want a prosperity gospel. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It begins with him coming to us. It is this tremendous love that takes to the chase and takes the initiative and moves towards us and wants to be found. So grace is this, this powerful love that strikes us. It's this, it's this tremendous love that takes the chase, but it is also this sacrificial love, this sacrificial love that has chosen the low way. The low way. And if I'm honest with you, I, <clears throat> I would like to move up, if I'm honest. I would like to gain status. I would like to gain more power. But that is the opposite of the Christmas story. Jesus had more glory, more power, more status than I could ever imagine, and yet he gave it all up to come here just so that I could know him and so that you could know him. He emptied himself completely. And, and that's why I think Jesus is telling us that children are the model. We always say Christmas is for children. And you know what? We're right. That's true. Christmas is for children. And I think there's a reason why Jesus used a child to model, said this is what you want to be like. This is what you want to, if, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you've got to be like a child. And he's not saying that, that the kingdom is some, inf, some playground for infants. He's not saying that you've got to be really gullible and believe anything that comes along on the internet or, or on Facebook or whatever. What he's saying here is that children are, it's not because they are innocent, it's because they are incompetent. <laughs> There's nothing they can do to gain it, to earn it. Amen. They have no claim on the kingdom, they just are. They, they also have no past. They have no past to brag about, and they have no past baggage to come and, and make excuses about. They have no past. And Jesus is telling us, you know what? Your past is pretty irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. You come here as a child. It is the way of loneliness. And he took the way of loneliness just to show us what God was like. So grace is this sacrificial love that took the low way. And finally, grace is this merciful love that is only accessible to the vulnerable. It's only accessible to the vulnerable. The shepherds, I think, are indispensable in this story. They are indispensable because the only reason we know them, we know the reason we know of them, is because they were drawn to Jesus. If you know anything about the shepherds in the ancient world, 
They were on the lowest rung of the economic social ladder. Some of them were criminals. criminals. Uh, they were excluded from society. They were, they were hardly ever participated in the rituals, the Jewish rituals, because they were perpetually unclean. But they're necessary because they rescued Jesus for us from the control of politics. They rescued Jesus from us for the control of economics. They rescued Jesus for us from the control of organized religion. This is totally different. And we know the shepherds are there simply because they were drawn to Jesus. They are not the leaders. They are not the decision makers. They're not the movers. They're not the shakers. They're the ones who don't make the rules. The only reason is that they were drawn to Jesus. Children, shepherds, they're important because they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. And I believe that only vulnerable people can change. And I also believe that only vulnerable people can change others. There's something about that that, that prompts transformation. And when you look to the rest of the New Testament, that the ones who really got it, who got Jesus, who understood it, who are they? They're the ones on the margins. They're the ones who are, who are desperate. They're the ones who desire Jesus in an extraordinary way. They're the lepers, the sinners, the prostitutes, the Gentiles, the sick, the unclean. They were all those people. They're the ones who got Jesus. It wasn't the religious folks. It wasn't the politicians. It was the people who were excluded. The Christmas story tells us that God loves you whether you like it or not. And that's what Christmas really is about. Christmas tells us that we have everything going for us because we have Jesus. Amen. We have everything going for us because we have Jesus. Richard Rohr says the Christian never loses because he doesn't have anything to lose. Because we have it all. And that's why we continue to sing good tidings of comfort and joy, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of a divided country. We can still sing good tidings of comfort and joy because of the Messiah. Our God, our God meets us in the gateway of our failings. He meets us in the dark valleys. Our God goes to great extremes just to seek us. Our God chooses the low way where there's power in humility, where strength is perfected in weakness, where the first are last and the last become first, where the meek are called blessed and inherit the land. We have a God who chooses the low way. And we have a God, and the most astonishing thing of all to me, we have a God who is vulnerable, who has chosen to be vulnerable, who has chosen the way of suffering, not to explain it to us, but to share it with us. That's Christmas. The God who becomes vulnerable. Rabbi Abraham Heschel 
told a bunch of Christians once at a conference, he said, Jesus Christ is of no importance unless he is of supreme importance. And he was chastising these group of Christians who say Jesus is important, Jesus is important. And he's basically saying he's no important unless he is of supreme importance. So live like it.